So like I said, we've got Jason from City Collective coming to give us the word. Uh, and it's Canada Day today. So let's give him an extra welcome. Yeah. <laughs> They let me across the border. <laughs> to be honest, I think my skin color makes a little bit difference, uh, difficult sometimes, and this is not me taking a shot at the States. This is everywhere I go. If I ever travel with a friend of mine, uh, my brother-in-law, we'll always get to security, and he'll walk up, and he'll get pointed to one line, and I always get pointed by chance to another. But I made it through this time, and I'm so grateful to be here with you this evening. Uh, can I first say how much I appreciate your pastor, how amazing Chris is. Can we just give it up for Chris? He's just so tremendous. I think your journey in planting a church uh, is always an encouragement your story, uh, the experiences that you've gone through, and to hear from Chris along the way and to be able to connect with him has been such a blessing to myself and to our, our community, uh, growing community up at City Collective in British Columbia. And so there's so much that we've got to learn over this past little bit. And so I've, I've been introduced, but I always feel like I get the opportunity in new spaces to use jokes that I've uh, used countless numbers of times until people are sick of them. And so uh, to introduce myself, my full name is Jason Spencer Charles. So it is the whitest brown name that you will probably hear uh, for the next little while. But I'm so excited to be here, so grateful. Uh, our, our journey as a church has been uh, an incredible one. We moved from Alberta to BC just under a year ago. And we moved as, as a true parachute. And when I, what I mean by that is that we had no church affiliation, uh, no family, no friends that we were moving and we had knowledge of at the time. But we knew that God had placed a vision upon my heart and, and a conviction that this was the right place and the right time. And he was calling us to a community of people to see them experience life in Jesus. And so we moved with only a vision in our hearts and a story in front of us. And uh, over the past year, we have seen incredible things take place in our midst. And so we have adopted a very much a welcome into our home perspective. And uh, what we've discovered over and over again is that people uh, often are a little bit resistant up front, but when you make an invitation and you do it so honestly with no pretense, no expectation, people want to come have some food. <laughs> people want to come share a laugh together to talk about life and, and to enjoy a moment around a dinner table. And that's exactly what we've experienced. Over the past year, we've had over 250 unique individuals that we've never met before come to the doors of our home. We've experienced uh, opportunities to serve in our local community through different organizations and in different school environments. And time and time again, we have seen God's faithfulness. And I don't want to ever paint our story as one of ambition or one of risk because it's truly a story of only obedience. It's, it's seeing God go before us, calling us into it, and just saying yes. And learning to say yes over and over and over again is difficult. Because it's so often that you see God do something incredible in one moment, and then you step into the next, and you're like, no, that's not possible. And he's like, just remember. Remember who I am, how I respond, and how I'm leading you, and just say yes. And so we've learned, sometimes hesitantly, to say yes, 
and time and time again, he's proven himself faithful. And so this, this has been an incredible journey. Like I said, just under a year since we moved in that, in that period of time, our team has grown. People have taken a chance on us, this random group of 20-somethings. I, I was the oldest of the group that moved, and I'm only 28, and uh, just turned 29, I guess. And so that, this has been an incredible journey to see people even just take a chance to believe that God is in it, to pray into it, and then to be a part of a community that is having an opportunity to love on our neighbor. That has been an incredible part of it. And so we've had some big rocks fall into place, so we're grateful for that. Uh, but uh, September's almost here, and man, does it feel real. <laughs> there's, there's many a morning where I wake up and I'm like, why am I doing this again? Like, I don't understand why, what I'm doing here. My, my mom and dad, they're back in Calgary. Everything, reputation, relationships, Calgary. But then God shows himself faithful that day. Some little way, always a little reminder. Or I can just remember that there's probably snow still around somewhere in Calgary. And then I'm okay. <laughs> but it's been so wonderful. So I'm grateful to be here with you this evening. And I'm going to take full advantage and jump right into the scripture. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to jump into John chapter 8. This evening we're going to go out of the ESV uh, for myself. I don't know what Bibles you have in front of you, but uh, John chapter 8, we're just going to go verses 1 through 11, starting in verse 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Can we pray? Jesus, thank you so much for this place, for this moment, for the shared opportunity to come before you and to invite your presence to speak into our hearts, convict us, challenge us, stretch us. Let these be more than words that we read, but these calls to action that transform who we are. This is the promise of your word, of your scriptures. Let our hearts be open, ready to receive all the goodness that we've gone through. And if we're struggling with a loss in the World Cup in this last little bit, heal our hearts. Because there's some good soccer coming up, and we're so grateful for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 You've got to. It's like the World Cup comes every, once every four years. You've got to take full advantage of it and enjoy it. Am I right? You've got to take full advantage. Um, have, have anyone, has anyone here ever traveled? Made the decision that they were going to travel to the, I don't know, the exotic location of Spokane. <laughs> right? You, you, you make a decision. I'm going to go on a, a weekend trip. And if you're, if you're like myself, you, uh, perhaps you're more disciplined than I am you make the decision that you're going to pack a suitcase 
and then you procrastinate a little, and then you're like, oh, I'm going to travel in a few hours. I should probably get some clothes packed. And then you go to your closet, and you're like, oh, I should probably take this and this. And before you know it, you've got five extra T-shirts, three sweaters. Uh, it's the middle of winter, uh, middle of summer, but you still feel the need for those sweaters. Pair of socks. Uh, you've got way more than you need to pack into that suitcase. I, maybe this is just me, and I'm the irresponsible one. But I pack it into that suitcase, and I make the decision. I'm taking all of it with me. And and. If maybe you've experienced this as well, that you pack that suitcase and then you look at it and you're like, oh, that's not going to close. <laughs> There's no way. And so what do you do? You put your full weight into it. It's like two knees, right? Two knees down onto it. You're stretching. You're pulling. Like, let's be honest. You're, the thought crosses your mind. I could check this bag. I could, I could get a bigger bag. I could check it. But let's be honest. I was looking for the cheapest flight already, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm pulling, and I'm yanking, and I get to that point where there's like five inches between each of the zippers, and, and th- I can see the light. I can see the light, but it's a stretch. It's a stretch. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling out in tongues. I'm, I'm yelling to this, this bag to, to close, to close, to close close and then it closes and I get that moment of euphoria and you feel so accomplished in that moment and then you know that you're going to have to do that probably one more time and it's going to be awful. And, and this is a funny picture and a funny word example, but uh, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus makes the statement. He says, I, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I came to fulfill it, fulfill it. And the word fulfill in the original Greek language is kind of like packing a suitcase. It means to cram, to, to, to jam it full, to make it, to make it replete, to, to have it so full and satisfied and, and overflowing. And when Jesus is saying that in Matthew 5, 17, he's, he's taking a different approach. He approaches the law and the prophets, not saying I'm going to abolish it or fulfill it, but take it to a place that is of abundance, that is beyond our comprehension. And it is almost the stance of Jesus when we look throughout the biblical narrative. There is countless examples of him doing just that. Him turning water into wine, there was plenty left over. Him feeding feeding 8,000, 10,000, 12,000, and there was still 12 baskets left over. Him telling the disciples to toss in their nets and it is crammed, it's jammed, it's full, it's to their point of satisfaction and beyond. And this is, this is kind of the invitation that Jesus makes, that he would be inviting us into a place where we would feel fulfilled, satisfied. Because isn't that what we all kind of search for? We search for a life of meaning. To feel satisfaction as, as a son, as a daughter, as a father, as a mother, as a, as a worker at a job, as a business owner, as something in life in which we can feel full, satisfied, valued, purposeful. But G- and Jesus invites us into that. And I find it interesting that when we get to this passage in John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with the law which he has promised to do what? Fulfill. And he is overtly confronted with it. And the leaders of the day, they come before him with a challenge, hoping to trap Jesus. 
but they end up in a court of law where Jesus is more the judge and they're the lawyers bringing an argument, not what they expected when they came into the situation. But when we see this woman who's brought before these, by these leaders before Jesus, she's brought vulnerable, hurting. And if, and if you're like myself when I read this passage, it's easy to sympathize with her. You feel bad for this woman. She doesn't, it doesn't feel like she almost deserves this kind of treatment. But if we're being honest, and we're looking at the time and the place and the scripture, they were in the right. She had broken the law. She had been caught in the act of adultery. She had broken the seventh commandment. And the demand of the law was to be stoned. But the law is a funny thing because the law, as they were reading it, yes, at face value, it was demanding that they stone the woman. But it was actually painted in a way that made it seem like it was so broad and so easy to break the law. But they were, they were smarter than that. The actual demand of the law, because you could sometimes have uh, maybe an upset husband who makes a claim and then causes the woman to be stoned. They made it a little bit tougher than that. It actually demanded that there would be two witnesses who had the exact same testimony of the broken law. Two witnesses that were exactly the same. And it was, it was three things in this scenario. They would have to see them in, in bed together, very specific movements, and verified identities. It required three things. And it didn't require one, one of them seeing it one time and another seeing it another time. It had to see it at the exact same time. This was the demand of the law. And they were saying we had caught her in the act. They were saying we had evidence that solidified what the law demanded in this moment. But the law was also something that was supposed to lead people to a place where they were to experience the heart of the Father, which was compassion. So in order for them to catch this woman in this act, there almost had to be a situation carefully crafted in order to catch her in it for two individuals to catch all those exact things. And if you, and if you could picture with me that if they were to create this trap, see her walk into the room, isn't there a moment in between that would demand compassion that they were avoiding? I love how Jesus takes them to that place and she comes before Jesus. He kneels down and starts to write in the, in the sand. And then he says to them, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. It doesn't come with, hey, you're wrong. I know what you've been doing. Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Because they had to commit a sin in order to catch her in hers. Too often we are the teacher of the law, ready to execute judgment on another because judgment is a smokescreen for sin in our own lives. And Jesus puts that before them. 
And it's a painful experience for them because everyone gets a little bit uncomfortable. I can picture the scenario where she's standing there and she's wondering, why is he even saying that? And everyone that's standing around the teachers of the law, they start looking uncomfortably at one another. What's he going to write in the sand? Nobody really knows even what he wrote in the sand. There's a lot of different theories, whether he wrote down their sins in the sand, whether he was writing out a scripture, or maybe he was just doodling. We don't really know. We don't have anything verified. But we do know that this is the only time in scripture where Jesus actually wrote something. It's the one incidence where it took place. It was a unique, unique passage. And they get to this point, and everyone's wondering, what is it that he's trying to say? And I love that what Jesus does in this moment speaks more than what he said. Without saying a word, Jesus bent down and began to write. What was he doing in that moment? You have a crowd of people around you. And you, turn, you sit down. She's still standing in this moment. And begins to write. He makes himself vulnerable in that moment. Exposes his back. Makes himself prone. Without a word being spoken, he's saying to the woman, you are not alone. You might feel vulnerable and hurting and broken. But you are not alone. So often when we, when we go before the scriptures, we, we can see individuals in it, but we, we miss what it's actually trying to say to us in this, in this moment. Because Jesus was well ahead of his time. The way that Jesus communicated was always, it seemed like, in a, in a time and place where 140 characters in a tweet means a lot, Jesus would drop like the ultimate tweets where he would say, let you who has no sin cast the first stone. Mic drop, game over, right? He, he, he's, he's quick and he's, he's witty and he's on the, po- on the point in those moments and he says what needs to be said, but he acts in a way that makes his words actually mean something. And what he does is he shows empathy before empathy is a trendy thing. Empathy is kind of a trendy word nowadays. We talk about we need to show empathy with one another. We need to be empathetic. But Jesus didn't just, he didn't even say the word empathy, but he learned how to show it. Because we often make the mistake of distinguishing empathy and sympathy as different things. Picture with me that you have a pit. uh, You're in the middle of it. You've made a mistake. It's been really hard. Somebody comes to the edge of that that pit that you've dug for yourself. There's no way out. And they say, shoot, I'm so sorry. That's really tough. I wonder if some, I feel really bad for you. That, my friends, is sympathy. Jesus showed empathy. And he said, that's awful. Let me get down there in there with you. And I'm not going to just come down there empty-handed. I'm going to come down there with a ladder of grace and truth and forgiveness and redemption to not just leave you there, but to help you get back up out of it. Because that is the picture of the gospel, isn't it? A broken humanity, myself, yourselves, sinners unable to save ourselves, stuck in our pain, in our guilt, in our shame, making mistakes and not knowing what to do about it. And Jesus did not just say, sorry. I feel bad for you. I wish you got it right. He said, no, 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 I'm going to come down. I'm going to experience what you experience. I'm going to make myself vulnerable. The pain that you go through on a day-to-day basis, I'm going to experience betrayal. I'm going to weep. 
I'm going to experience that which makes you human, but I'm going to come with hope that is not possible unless through me. Came with that ladder of hope to pull her out. And it was a revelation for her in that moment just to see him make himself prone and vulnerable in that moment. And then one by one, they began to leave. And there's, there's lots in there, but one by one, they began to leave. And they get to this place where there's nobody left but Jesus and, and the woman. And the woman is still standing, and Jesus is still prone. And he stands up, and he says to her, is there anyone left to condemn you? No, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Grace before truth. Both were present. And it was an invitation to the woman of experience what grace is and then live in the truth that you are not condemned. I just want to end with a story. I had a, I had a friend that I hadn't seen for a long time. Like we grew up in similar circles, and it was about four years ago that we saw each other, and we, we grabbed some food. I'll always remember this, this conversation. We were at a pizza, uh, Boston Pizza. There's a thing out here? Boston Pizza, that's a thing there? Yeah. Not relevant at all. <laughs> we, we ate food together. <laughs> and we sat down, and we were enjoying this meal. We were catching up, and... Uh, our, our past had gone different ways, and he had come to this moment where uh, he shared with me he attempted to take his life. And there's, there's a wide story around it, but he got into this place where he attempted to take his life and uh, survived. And he got to the point where he made that decision, okay, there's a reason. What's my why? Why do I matter? What is my purpose here? Why did I survive? So what he did, and I'm not suggesting this for everyone, he uh, bought a plane ticket, hopped on, hopped on the plane, and went to India, and he lived in the slums there for six months. Partnered with an organization that was rec rescuing uh, women and children who were part of the sex trade. Okay. And he said it was the most devastating six months of his life. Daily going into communities and seeing women and children ripped out of their homes and, and forced into the trade and trying to be part of the solution but often falling short and then day after day being confronted with his own faith and why he mattered and why he was there. And he only had one person with him, his translator, who was going to, uh, space to space with him. And there was one community in particular. So at the time, the area that he was in, he was going village to village and he was having these conversations with leaders in the area. And he grew to love one of the, the leaders, and, and they loved him, and he was able to, to be there before the, the trade syndicate reached the area. But he had to move on. It was, it was part of the process for him. So he moved on from that, that town to the next, and then he got word that the syndicate had made its way to that town, threatened to kill everyone unless they gave the women and the children. So they had to. And so he received word, and the leader 
reached out to him. And, and culturally, it's a, it's a little bit of an interesting dynamic. If you're born in North America or if you have white skin, it, it is impactful upon whether or not you have influence in the area. And so what the leader asked was, like, would you even just talk to him, the leader of that syndicate? Would you, would you see if you could do anything? His name is David, um, my friend that went, was in no place. Didn't really know what he believed at the time. Was struggling on the day-to-day experience that he was going through. And he got to this space and heard, and he said, okay, I'll do what I can. So him and his translator, they went to the mansion, the villa, whatever you want to call it, of the leader of that sex trade syndicate, buzzed him at the front, said who he was, where he was from, and they let him in. And he was invited into the house, and they went into the sitting room. And he sat across from that, uh, the leader of the sex trade in that area, and the guy had a machete sitting right beside him through the entire conversation. And David doesn't know what to say. What is he going to say to convince this man? And so the leader was curious. He wanted to know about North America, about the lifestyle. And so what did David do? He told the story. But he didn't want to tell him about anything about Jesus. Didn't know how he would respond. So he always just framed Jesus as this friend. So he spent the next three hours across from the leader, machete in hand, telling his story about this friend that had saved him when he didn't deserve it. That his friend that had not given up on him. That this friend that had followed him into the slums of India. That this friend that always seemed to show up. And he told that story for three hours. And at the end of those three hours, the sex trader turned to him and he said, Who is this friend? I want to know him. And David, who would never uh, portray himself as a great orator or communicator or evangelist, led that man to Jesus right there. Incredible. Then the man stands, then the sex trader stands up, still machete in hand. David's still frightened for his life in this moment. And he, he, he invites him, he says, Come with me. And David's like, life is flashing before his eyes. He's like, it's done. He was just playing games with me. But he followed him. He had no choice. Followed him through the corridors of the, of the house to a back room. And the man opened the door. Swung it open. And there on the ground were all the women and children tied up and gagged. And he looked at David and he said, take them. I don't want them anymore. So David got to one by one go around and take off the gag and take off their ties. And he got to lead them back into the village. And it was a beautiful scene. And and the sex trader, he came with David to apologize, to beg for forgiveness. And not just to do that, but he offered all of the money and the land that he'd accumulated through his actions over the past period of time. He gave it all to that village and said, let me just serve you. 
Jesus had grabbed a hold of his life and transformed it. And that is an incredible part of the story. And that tells us so much. But this is the part that really just like grabbed hold of my life when I heard the story. I asked David, how did you feel at the end of it? David said, I hated him. How dare he? How dare he receive that kind of love? How dare he think that you can just make up for your actions like that? How dare he? He has no right. And he came back to Canada and he said he spent the next three months battling with this hate in his heart for this man. And then Jesus revealed something so profound to him. And he said, even when you hated him, I loved him. Unmerited favor is only found in the heart of Jesus. It's easy to sympathize with the woman caught in adultery in that moment and be like, of course, Jesus is going to forgive her and then welcome her in. But the love of Jesus is so beyond us that he would even offer it to a sex trader that had maybe never thought of pure thought in his entire life. But he would forgive him and welcome him in. So this is my invitation to you tonight. Where do you find yourself in this story? When you look, reflect upon your life right here, right now, are you the woman caught in adultery? Do you feel like you've been caught? Caught in the act, caught in sin, caught in something that is separating you from truly experiencing grace and love and joy in your life. Perhaps you are the individual casting out judgment on another. And you have to really confront your spirit and your heart right now and ask yourself, is this who I want to be? Because the true invitation that is made in this story is Jesus saying, would you be like me in this moment and make yourself vulnerable to show true empathy to your neighbor, to the person who has no, in your mind has no right, doesn't deserve it, and would you show my love to them? Grace means nothing unless you are living it out. It doesn't just end with you. It is for you and through you. Joy for you and through you. A word does not have its meaning based upon the thought behind it, but on the action from it. So what is your action when you say that I am a Christ follower, when I am a Christian? Is it to stand from a distance and sympathize, or is it to be like Jesus was? And to dive down into that pain, into the hurt. But don't go empty-handed, because you have a ladder. You have a message of hope. You have Jesus with you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you that you accept us as we are. But you love us too much to leave us there. 
Thank you that the individuals in our life who we think are too far gone are never too far gone in your eyes. So for the neighbor that we are constantly railing against because of the lifestyle they're living, give us grace. Help us learn to love them as you would love them. For the sin that we feel caught up in, an addiction, a, a past indiscretion, a manner in which we're treating others or treating ourselves or treating uh, the communities that we're in. Father, help us to just have an openness right now to sense that you love us and your forgiveness is for us right here, right now. And we just confess our sins to you. And Father, I just pray as a community that lettered streets would be more than just a group of individuals that have experienced grace. But it would be a group of individuals that have experienced it and continue to experience it and continue to show it and live it out daily. Let not our church experience be isolated to a Sunday, Sunday experience, but to be lived out in the reality of life, in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes, in our cities. What would happen, Father, if we were to become as Jesus was to the world, as Jesus is to the world, if we lived out the, that reality? What would happen to our communities, to our families? The battle is not to be right, Father, but to be just in your presence and to be conduits of you. Everywhere we go. So, Father, I pray for the hearts tonight that are struggling. I pray for healing. That they would hear the words, neither do I condemn you. That they would not feel alone. That there would be an overwhelming sense of your presence upon their lives right now. Father, if there's someone here tonight that is asking this question of who is this Jesus, thank you for the start of new beginnings that you don't come to make our lives better, you come to transform it. I pray that there is just a, a joy and a courage that's placed upon them to talk to someone. Because, I, because you have something so special for them. And for everyone here this, this evening, thank you that your grace is sufficient, that your love overwhelms us, and that we are welcomed into your family. Challenge us, convict us, stretch us. Let this message, this sermon be more than just words that are heard on a Sunday, but something that resonates throughout the week that pushes us to be more than we are right now, but as you've called us to be children of God. Reflections of your goodness and your grace. Thank you for all that you do and more. In your name we pray. Amen.